Why is it that more Christians don't pray? I found this quote. It's a little long. Bear with me. It says, why don't more Christians pray? The unlimited potential of prayer as seen through the promises in the Bible is staggering. As God moves into action in the lives and situations that we bring before him, yet little praying is done. Why? Because the prayer life of many people has been discouraging and frustrating. Why? Because the basic belief seems to be that prayer is an attempt to move God over to our point of view, to get God to do what we want done, to use him as a means to our end. So, somehow it seems easier to try to do it ourselves the best we can than to get God involved in it. Yet, in prayer, we ought to seek to discover God's point of view and how and when and where he wants us to move and to live and obey. It's an interesting quote because it it is um, really could be the backdrop of uh, Psalm 85. So if you turn there with me, um, Psalm 85 is the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. You're going to see in that passage it is uh, about revival. In fact, in my Bible, the title of this section is Revive Us Again. And so I use that as the title of our message this morning, Revive Us Again, O God. So are you a prayer warrior? Do you oftentimes go to prayer and ask God for his help, his aid, his power, his wisdom, his blessing upon your life? Or do you find yourself spending most of your Christian life trying to do it on your own strength? in your own power, in your own wisdom. This um, psalm, Psalm 85, is probably set in the backdrop of the Babylonian captivity and Israel coming back. Um, For most of you, you know this already, that Israel got its beginning in this man named Abram. Um, Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram was called by God into a relationship with him. Abram was married to Sarai. Sarai was this woman, and the two of them were in relationship with one another. Uh, In Genesis uh, chapter 12, we find that uh, God is calling Abram out into this relationship. In Genesis chapter 15, we find that Abram is brought into a relationship with God, a covenant relationship with God. It says that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Just like you and I are saved, we believe God and it's credited to us as righteousness. What God had promised Abram and Sarai was that you could look at the stars or look at the sand and the number of your people will be greater than the stars in the sky or the sand. But there was a dilemma. They're 75 years old and they're barren. And what God promises is that they were going to have a child. And you know the story well. They didn't do enough praying. They tried to act in their own way and they tried to create a baby that they thought was going to breathe the heritage. And God says, no, that's not the way it's going to be. I am going to give you a child of promise. And you know who that child of promise was. So God gave them this son who was going to be the child of promise, this child that was going to be the one that was going to lead his people, Isaac. Isaac is going to uh, marry Rebekah. 
Rebecca is going to give birth to two twins. You know them, Esau and Jacob. Uh, Jacob was not a really great guy, but that shows the grace of God. Jacob actually means surplanter. It means that he is a deceiver. He actually deceived his brother, but God would choose to work through this sinful man to show his glory. Jacob's name was going to be turned to Israel. That's where we get the name Israel from. Israel is going to have 12 children. That's where we get the 12 tribes of Israel from. And so now what we're going to have is this family that is just going to go on for year after year after year, blessing and blessing and blessing, and they're going to project, and they're going to have more and more people as the stars in the sky and the, and the sand of the shores. And God gave them a kingdom, and it was a united kingdom, and their first king was Saul, and then their great king was David, and we know what David had done, and he had a son, Solomon. After Solomon, during this time, Israel found itself rejecting God. God had told them time after time, follow me, honor me, respect me, value me, reverence me. They didn't do it. And they turned to idolatry. They turned away from God. And then God, in his blessing upon that nation, said, I am going to warn you that if you continue in your sin and idolatry and iniquity, I will bring judgment upon you. And God brought person after person and prophet after prophet to speak for years after years after years. Israel rejected. Israel didn't follow. Isaiah prophesied for almost 50 years in this period, trying to tell Israel and Judah, turn. They were warned. Hosea was given, you know, the story of Hosea, his adulterous wife. He is showing that this is what we're doing as a people against God. We're committing adultery against God, spiritual adultery. In Hosea's life and marriage, it was showing how Israel was failing God. They didn't listen. Jeremiah was given, finally, to say once again, you must turn. They didn't. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, God had said that you will be sent into captivity for 70 years. The northern tribe and the southern tribe. One would go to Assyria, the other one would go to Babylon. It's in this Babylonian captivity for 70 years that the people finally repented and turned. They finally were enlivened by God. They were finally repentant and recognized their sin and came back to God again. And what God promises is this. He loves a contrite heart. He will not despise that one. And if my people who are led by name will turn from their wicked names, ways, I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. Well, this Psalm 85 is they've been brought back from Babylon, part of them. Part of the group has come back into the nation. And the psalmist is saying, God, you have been so amazing. And what the psalmist is going to do, three parts to it, he is going to recall the past blessings of God. He's going to look back and say, God, this is what you've done for us. Then he's going to request in the present, God, there's some things we desperately need today, right now. And now he's going to look to the future to see what God is going to do in the future and blessing of his people. Recalling the past, 
request in the future and then looking forward to the, f uh, uh, request in the present and then looking forward to the future. So would we read with, read with me here in Psalm 85? Verses one through three. Lord, you were favorable to your land. Favorable means that you showed favor. You were gracious to us, Lord. You restored or turned the fortunes of Jacob. The fortunes of Jacob were turned because they had been taken out of their captivity, out of their rebellion, and they'd been brought back to God. Verse 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people. It means to take away our iniquity. And in my version, it says iniquity in the, in the um, singular, but He's talking about iniquities in the plural, sin upon sin upon sin. God, you've been so gracious to forgive us of our iniquities. The iniquities of your people. You have covered all our sin. You withdrew all of your wrath. You've turned from your hot anger. Well, the psalmist is starting by recalling these great mercies that God has given, these great graces that God has given. He looks back in gratitude, and he looks back at the restoration that God has provided for his people. And he says, he says three things. He says, number one, you've restored your people. Now, the original language with this word restore is going to be used six times in this passage, and it actually literally means to turn. He is going to say that you've turned your people, God. You have brought us out of sin, and you've brought us back to you. You've turned us. You've returned or restored the fortunes of Jacob, God, in your compassion. He says the second thing is not only, God, have you restored us, but the second thing is that you've forgiven us. You have restored us. You've removed the sin from us, this heavy weight of burden of sin that was in our lives. God, you didn't just simply lift it up. You lifted it away. You've pushed it aside. It's as if the ceiling fell on me right now and you could lift up the weight. That's not enough. If you lifted that weight up and moved it aside, that's what God did for us in Christ for our sin. He forgave your sin. But the third thing he did in his favor, not only did he restore his people, not only did he forgive his uh, people, but the third thing he did was he, grew, he withdrew his anger from his people. It says in verse 3, you have withdrawn or set aside, you've gathered in all of your anger, all of your wrath, all of your fury. Your sin has been removed, so God's anger has been withdrawn. That's such precious words. See, when, when you're going through a difficult time, when I go through a difficult time, one of the key things we could do is to recall and remember what God has done for us in the past. See, if I can remember what God has done for me and what he has done for you, that helps me in the midst of the trials that are happening right now. So remember. One of the things that uh, jumped out at me as I was studying this is this. All of these words are in the past tense, the verbs in this section. He says, you were favorable, you restored, you forgave, you covered, you withdrew you turned. All of them are in the past tense, meaning that they happened before, but they're also in the original language in the perfect tense. And what that means is this. It is irrevocable. It is finished. That when God forgave you and when God restored you and when God removed his wrath, it's done forever and ever. If that doesn't get an amen, I don't know what gets it. 
we're free. The other thing that jumped out at me in these first six verses, and not only are all of these promises in the past, they're all focused on God's work alone. Six times in these verses, he uses the word you, not me, you. You were favorable, verse 1. You restored, verse 1. You forgave your people, verse 2. You covered. You withdrew your anger and wrath. You turned. It's God who's doing this. See, the beauty of salvation is it's not about us. It's not about our work. It's about his work alone. So as you're going through your difficult times, recall what God has done for you today. But there's a second thing in this psalm. He went from recalling what God has done in the past to requesting God's help in the present. Verse 4. He says, restore. Once again, that word means turn. Restore us again, O God. The psalmist seems to be gaining some level of encouragement from the past. And now he's looking to the future to try to figure out what is going to happen. And he's calling upon God's gracious work again. He knows that we are rightfully under God's judgment, or we were rightfully under God's judgment, and now God has forgiven us, and God, I want that again in our lives. He says, restore us again, O God. There's an earnestness to this, O God. There's something somber about it. There's something pretty serious in my mind about it. There's an intensity, there's a depth. Oh, God, you're the only one that can restore me. You're the only one that can restore us. What didn't seem to make sense to me is this. Now, if in the first three verses he has been arguing that God has already done it, why is he coming back now to say, God, do it again? Didn't make sense. It made sense once I understood this, that the captivity from Babylon, they were brought back in part, to their new land. Some of them had turned back to God, but there were still many that were not turned back. And what the psalmist is crying out is that I don't want just a portion of our people brought back. I want all our people brought back. So God, what you have done for us small, I want you to do for us all. Restore us again, O God, to our salvation. God is the only one who saves Put away your anger or your indignation. It means to end it, to nullify it, turn away from it, turn aside God. You know, really, there's no true restoration unless God's anger has been assuaged, if God's anger has been appeased. What God is, what the psalmist is calling for is that God turn us. We don't want you just simply to turn us. We want you to turn to us. The psalmist prays for God to do what he says he's going to do. God, do this for us. Turn away your anger or your indignation towards us. Verse 5. Will you be angry with us forever? Do you ever find that in your life? you ever ask that question? God, it feels like your anger is prolonged for all generations. Sometimes I think as believers we sit here and live our lives because we believe that God is constantly angry with us, constantly displeased with us. And we find ourselves fearful that God is going to hit us at any moment now. And we live under this level of condemnation and we live under this level of guilt and we live under this level of judgment and we are constantly thinking that we need to figure out a way to please God. It's not the scripture. 
what the scripture teaches us is that in the person and work of Christ, that all of God's anger for my sin and your sin has been paid for in Christ. That as God looks at the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is pleased with you. On your worst day, he still loves you. He still accepts you. He still forgives you. You are free. That's the beauty of the gospel. Will you be angry with me forever? No, because God's anger has been dealt with in Christ. Will your anger prolong for all generations? No, because it has been dealt with at the cross. God, verse 6, he prayed that they would restore. In verse 4, he prayed that, they would, that God would stop being angry. In verse 5, and now in verse 6, he prays that God would breathe life into us. He says, will you not revive, once again, turn, breathe life into us, resurrect us again, us again. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Genesis chapter 2. And God created Adam out of the dust of the ground. And what did he do? God breathed into him life. He brought life out of nothingness. That's what God wants to do in this church. That's what God wants to do in your life. That's what God wants to do in your marriages. That's what God wants to do in you individually. God wants to do something through this church so that he could display his glory. He wants to breathe life again. So many churches are so dead. So many Christians are so dead. They listen to sermons and it's nothing. They sing these worship songs and it's like mouthing the words and there is no joy, there is no passion, there is no power. And what the psalmist is praying that God breathe life again into this congregation. Alford said this, revival is that strange and sovereign work of God in which he visits his own people, restoring them, reanimating them, I love that word, releasing them into the fullness of his blessing. That's what God wants to do. And what's the fruit of that blessing? Right at the end of verse 6, that your people may rejoice. That the revival that should be happening in our churches today, we have been given blessing upon blessing. And yet, we have so little power. We have so little praise. <clears throat> revival awakens in our hearts an increased awareness of the presence of God, a new love for God, a new hatred for sin, a new hunger for his word. And what he says is this, that you can have a joy that is a praiseworthy, a great joy, a passionate joy, but our churches lack power. Our churches lack praise. I don't know why it is completely. I think the psalm is going to give us an idea. See, revival is not just simply something emotional. See, when I was a kid, we had these revival meetings, right? You remember when we were kids? And they, they were like these tent meetings, and they would last a week. And revival meetings were primarily about getting non-believers saved. That's what they called them, revival meetings. You know, as I was studying scripture, that's not what real revival is. Biblical revival is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ being lived again. And what happens if the church of the Lord Jesus Christ gets alive again, reanimated again? What does the world then see? See, I'm concerned that as the world looks at us 
as they look at our lives individually, if they look at our marriages, as they look at you in school, as they look at you at work, do they see Christ? Do they see it in me? I could put all the bumper stickers in the world in my life, but if I'm not showing Christ and displaying him, how's the world ever going to see? See, what God wants to do is to revive you so that they can see him. Revive you so that they can see him. And that's what the psalmist is crying out for. Verse 7, show us your steadfast love, your, your mercy, your unfailing love, your covenantal love, God. He prays that God would cause us to see your love. In 2 Timothy, it says, when we were faithless, he remained faithful because he couldn't deny himself. That even as we are faithless, God is constantly faithful because he is faithful to you. You can trust his promises. Revival is supposed to refresh our spirit. Revival is supposed to reinvigorate a love for God. Revival is supposed to bring a greater intimacy for God and desiring him, his word, his prayer, obedience to him. Revival is supposed to help you to resolve conflicts. Revival is supposed to help you bend, bro- um, repair broken relationships. Revival is supposed to help you to deal with the bitterness in your life, the fear and the anger in your life. Revival is supposed to come to a place where it changes your mind and renews your mind. Revival is supposed to reform our lives and set us free. Why is it that so many believers in the Lord Jesus Christ don't seem to change? That we are supposedly brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but there has been no radical change in our lives. Paul would argue that you need to examine your life closely to see if you're even in the faith because there should be a fruit that is producing something radically different in your life if you've been revived again. Oh, Lord, show us your steadfast love. Oh, Lord, grant us your salvation. Rescue us, Lord. So the psalmist went from recalling the past graces to requesting the present help of God to resting in the person and work of God alone in verse 8 and following. He says, yeah, there's a time where we speak too much. And sometimes what we need to do is let God talk. Less dialogue, more monologue. Let God talk to you when you're in the midst of the struggles. And what does God say? Let me hear, verse 8, what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak what to you? Peace to his people to his saints. He passionately prayed now that they would focus on the powerful promises of God. Right now, there's this song I love. It goes, I need thee every hour. Most gracious Lord, no tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. See, that should be the power and the presence that, God, I need you right now. Is that your passion today? The psalmist said that I need to hear God. Some of us need to unplug our phones. Some of us need to get off the computer. Some of us need to get out of, off the TV and spend time hearing God speak life to you so that he can change you. He says he speaks peace to his people. It means the end of hostility. 
In Isaiah chapter 40, love this passage. It says this in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that the warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. And a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the desert highway path. For every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain will be laid low, and even the ground underneath will become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Or how about at the end of that passage in Isaiah 40? Have you not heard, have you not known that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases the strength. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. The psalmist recognized that I need to hear you, God. I need you to talk to me. Verse 9, verse eight, the end of verse 8. But let them not turn back to their folly. Stop turning back to your idolatry. Don't turn back to rejecting me. Don't turn back to your infatuation with sin, your love affair with sin. Turn to me. Verse 9. Surely his, God's salvation is near, whether that's time or distance, I'm not sure, to those who fear him. It's not a remote promise, but it's an imminent reality that God is here among us. Fear means to reverence him, to worship him. And then what the psalmist does at the end here is pretty cool. He takes the characteristics of God that would seem to be in competition from a human viewpoint and says that they've been brought into harmony. See, if God is a God of anger and justice because of my sin and your sin, where does peace come in? If God is a God of love and faithfulness, but then he is also a God of truth, how do those coincide? He says, it's beautiful language, steadfast love, that covenantal, that loyal love of God and faithfulness or truth meet together. He says, righteousness and peace kiss each other. They embrace each other. Where did this happen? It happened in only one place, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The 2,000 years ago, when Christ lived on this earth, he lived a life that we could never live every day from the womb to the grave. And he went to a cross, and on that cross, he took the sin of all those who were going to believe in him. He suffered for us. His righteous life that he lived was imputed to us, granted us. Remember that with Abraham? It was credited to him as righteousness. It's credited to us. And now we enjoy the benefits of his righteousness. Righteousness and peace kiss one another. He ends by saying this. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from heaven. It's almost like God looks down from heaven and is smiling on you if you're in his son.
So he says that these attributes that seem to be at war, they're not because they've been brought together in Christ. He says in verse 12 that yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield or harvest its increase. There's a harmony that is between us and God. There's a harmony that's between heaven and earth. There's a harmony that's between humanity, Jim Boyce said. God promises you peace. God promises you prosperity. God promises you forgiveness. God promises you freedom. He ends with this. He personifies this word righteousness. He says, righteousness will go before him. Literally means to attend to him. And make his, our footsteps, his way. Righteousness basically safeguards us. So I, I wonder, what is it that grieves you today? What is it that breaks your heart today? I love my jobs. <laughs> One of my jobs, I sit in an office day after day, and I hear the brokenness of humanity. I see relationships that are broken by sin. I see hurt and pain and devastation. I don't know each one of you individually, but as I look out at a congregation of people, I know that there's some people that are in bondage to, to fear. I know that there's some people that are in bondage to lust. I know that there's some people in this congregation that are in bondage to anger. I know that there's some people in this congregation that are in bondage to uh, compulsions and addictions. I know that there's some people in this congregation that are in bondage to broken relationships. I know that there's some of you that are struggling with shame or guilt. There's some of you that can't seem to let your past go. Some of you are so worried about your future, and you are bound. And God says in Christ, you're free. You are not only forgiven in Christ, but you're free. And this psalm is a psalm of hope. See, on the authority of God's word and the personal work of Christ, I can tell you that in Christ you are forgiven and free. You need to live in it. Can the world see Christ in you? And can the world see Christ in me? Is your heart revived today? Is God evidence in us? Is this church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, truly showing ourselves to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? One author put it this way. The church is waiting for the world to be regenerate. But the world is waiting for the church to be repentant. Can I say that one more time? The church is waiting for the world to be regenerate, brought to life. But what the world is waiting for is that you and I get repentant and revived and enlivened once again. Programs are not going to change people. A building is not going to change people. God changes people, and God is glorified in us when we are revealing him. One last quote, and then I'll end. Or said this, in the unrevived, in the unrevived state of the church, Saints go rushing to find sinners. But in the revived state of the church, sinners go rushing to find a savior. I love that. That if there's something different in your life and in my life, people should be rushing to find a savior. 
O breath of life, come sweeping through us. Revive your church with life and power. O breath of life, come cleanse, renew us, and fit your church to meet this hour. O wind of God, come bend us, break us, till humbly we confess our need. Then in your tenderness, remake us, revive, restore, for this we plead. O breath of love, come breathe within us, renewing thought and will and heart. Come love of Christ, afresh win us, revive your church in every part. O heart of Christ, once broken for us, tis there we find our strength and rest. Our broken, contrite hearts now solace, and let your waiting church be blessed. Revive us, Lord. Is the zeal abating? While harvest fields are vast and white, revive us, Lord. The world is waiting. Equip your church to spread your light. Father, we pray today that you would help us to recall the amazing past blessings that you've given us, Father. You have forgiven us. You have favored us. You have taken your anger away from us. We praise you for that. Father, in our present, help us to be prayerful. Help us to be prayerful people that hear your word, Father, and pray to you that you would do it again in our lives. Do it again. Revive us again. Restore us again. Fill us again. And Lord, I pray that we would look with hope to the future that we are resting in the promises of God and resting in the person and work of Christ. Father, nobody in this world is ever going to be changed by a building. Nobody is going to be changed by a program. They will only be changed by the person and work of Christ, your Holy Spirit working in them. So God, breathe life into us. Breathe life into our families Breathe life into our marriages. Breathe life into this congregation. And help us to have a powerful impact in this community for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.